0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment, with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today, and let's get into this episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Shanta Wilkinson for those tuning into the show for the first time, and I am the campaign manager of Opportunity Starts at Home. I am thrilled to get into our discussion today, so let's get into this episode. To start, on Earth Day, the campaign released an issue brief that examines housing policy and environmental justice policy. The brief explores the connection between housing and the environment by taking a close look at the impacts of environmental injustices on housing stability, the history of environmental and housing policy and advocacy, and federal policy solutions to problems involving the intersections of the environment and housing. The issue brief will be linked in the description of this podcast, so please make sure to check it out if you have not done so already. Today, we are taking a closer look at the connection, and to help us, we are joined by Dr. Sabrina Johnson from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Dr. Johnson, please, we welcome you to this podcast. We are so thrilled to have you. And just tell us about yourself. What led to your interest in the intersection of housing and environmental justice?
1: Hi, Chantel. Thank you so much for that great introduction. I'm thrilled to be here and thank you to our audience and our listeners. Uh, My name is Dr. Sabrina Johnson. I am a New York native, uh, born and raised in Long Island. And my relationship towards environmental justice, justice for people of color, really started in childhood, just always being like outspoken and an advocate for Things that didn't seem right, asking clarifying questions, and I didn't know what to name it. That information would come to me later on in my career, serving as an AmeriCorps member, AmeriCorps VISTA member, to further learn about supporting communities, particularly communities of color, um, to access an opportunity through environmental justice opportunities, and just really being an advocate and an ally in light of climate change. Um, My background really connects to being in service to the liberation of others. I believe in at times, not at times, at all times, upholding one's dignity and worth, and I see the intersections of climate change, environmental racism, and the need to have a justice-oriented approach for vulnerable communities to be seen, to be heard, and have access to resources.
0: Yeah, I deeply connect to that as well. Um, I'm also a New York native, a Brooklyn native, and I was raised in affordable housing, so I I deeply understand the issue. Uh deeply felt, you know, compelled as a as a child to work in policy, um to have that voice to give voice to others, um being in a place to help um just construct the policies that govern the way that we live but also truly understanding the foundation of housing and how important it is. And I think it's incredible that we're gonna be having this conversation today about how environment connects to to the stuff that we care about um, because we're having such a, a national and societal conversation about it right now. So incredibly grateful to have this conversation with you to learn more about the connection as well. And your connection with us has deeply, you know, enhanced and enriched our work on the campaign level, um, the national campaign and what we've been doing. And NRDC has been a really great partner in the last few years, um, starting from the roundtable and making its way to our steering committee to have an even more better and deeper impact on the work that we do. So I would just turn it over to you to tell us a bit more about NRDC, the mission, uh, the primary focus, and how do we get to this focus of housing and racial equity in the work that you do?
1: Absolutely. Would love to further connect and share those details. Um, So the Natural Resource Defense Council... We believe in advocating for climate change regardless of socioeconomic status, zip code. Um, All residents, all people have access to uh, safe and healthy housing and a safe climate that they don't have to recover from. Our team. Is comprised of multiple experts uh, that I have the privilege and honor of working with, uh, scientists, lawyers, doctors. Um, There are multiple avenues of advocacy on our front to really strengthen partnership with communities and be supportive to endeavors around climate change. Uh, My role in particular as our senior housing policy advocate really stems from understanding understanding that housing affects everything, all of our work, um, whether it's uh, the water team climate and clean energy like housing plays a fundamental role in all of all of that. Right, um, so I was brought on to really strengthen the opportunity to advance uh, housing um, policy advocacy and really connect it at the community level, um, focusing focusing on the advocating for safe and humane environments. Right, so what we think of climate change and like efficiency, like the lingo nowadays is almost like it's considered a luxury, and just that lens from lived experience from working in community with folks, I understand like. This is our daily struggle as a Black woman. I understand, you know, race inherently racist policies, even like living in affordable housing during my grad school program, being on Section 8. Just the mistreatment that comes, the lack of information, the lack of equitable resources that are viable to communities on the ground. Um, you know, so having someone like myself in this role really enhances the process of learning with community and taking a step back from rather than making assumptions assumptions on what we think communities need, but being grounded on what are some plans and opportunities that can you know provide more equitable access and resources uh, to advancing housing policies to benefit all residents in a way that advances racial justice um, through t- t- towards um, using policy advocacy as that vehicle. And like I mentioned, my focus just really stems on the lived experience, upholding the dignity and worth of humans. I don't believe that a homeless person on the street just because, you know, They are displaced at the moment or maybe going through a tough time. Maybe climate change has, you know, directly impacted where they are able to afford to live. And maybe they were, you know, a climate disaster. Their homes weren't rebuilt. Their dignity and worth doesn't deplete contingent upon their experience. So I believe firmly in just developing and partnering with uh, folks who are developing monumental strategies to uphold the integrity of human beings and society. Um, And that just connects to our focus on just climate change, equity, justice, uh, human health and nature and wildlife. It's all interconnected and housing definitely bridges the, the gap between those avenues at the intersection of housing policy and climate policy.
0: Thank you. I really resonated with um, a lot of the things that you mentioned. Looking at somebody and looking at the, the landscape of, you know, who is experiencing housing instability and homelessness. And there are people who are working. There are people who maybe have a disability or people who are um, or, or older adults, students. There are so many people are experiencing homelessness and housing instability and in that housing instability there's also the instability of a lot of other sectors that we touch on in the campaign from health to their education may be unpacked if there's children or against if they're students college students uh their environmental and uh, economic mobility is also impacted uh, there are ways in which um, homelessness and Um, evictions have an impact on particular groups of of our population as well and all of this uh, has an impact on the way that people live that their well-being seeing them as holistic uh, people who need resources and the way that you ended there with housing being at the intersection where we live how we live really impacts the resources and what's available to us unfortunately is a disparity and it's uh it's there's an injustice and inequity within that and the way that those resources are distributed. But it is a fact that where we live has an impact on so many aspects of our lives. So environment is is not something that is is separate from that, is very much interconnected to the work that we do. In recent years, we've seen a conversation around environmental justice particularly this movement that is happening now the advocates really raising their voices around the concerns about justice being a part of the ways that we look at policy um, in our in our country so i just wanted to turn it over to you if you can give us an idea give us a most paint the picture for us of the history of this environmental justice movement how did it get started and what has it aimed to accomplish
1: yeah That's a really beautiful question. And I honestly admire the birth of the environmental justice movement. Um, So essentially in the late 1970s, uh, it begins with Dolly Burwell, the Reverend Leon White, Reverend Benjamin Travis Jr. and the UCC's Commission for Racial Justice, the United Church of Christ. And they served as that leading organization that is the force of the birth of the environmental justice movement. Essentially, what was happening in Warren County, um, the citizens were concerned and started to protest in North Carolina because there was a landfill in their county for disposal of toxic chemical substances, PCBs, and that was banned by Congress in 1979. But with that population, what we saw, the data, because the data always guides us, there were 62% of Black residents in that county. And no other county, Chantel, in that state, had a higher percentage of Black residents, and only a few other states, like a hundred counties or so, could claim higher poverty rates. So we're seeing race, we're seeing class, and we're seeing um, we're seeing poverty, right? And we're seeing that people of color are disproportionately represented in who is taken who is um, considered um, protected, a protected class. Um, so essentially, the placement of this landfill became. Regarded as an instance, like towards the term that we coined, environmental racism, which referred it was a phrase coined by Chavez, which defines environmental racism as the unequal access to clean a clean environment and a basic environmental resource based on one's race. And those are some of the considerations that we were seeing. The sixty-two percent of folks um, in that population, it 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 just had a disproportionate impact on their lived experience. My research also guides us to. When the dump truck started rolling in in like mid-September, it essentially it was a hazardous waste landfill in the small community of Acton. And during that time, residents and allies and, like, people, like, mobilized a movement because they were furious with the state. Um, they, and they felt like the state had dismissed their concerns over the toxic chemicals, PCBs, leaching into their drinking waters, their supplies. Um, and at that point, they had stopped the trucks and they met them lying down on roads um, that were leading into the landfill. And it was weeks, about like six weeks of marches and, you know, nonviolent street protests. People just wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. Right. And those are like the birth of movements when it's peaceful protests. And it's just a community of organizers who have a shared belief system on being treated with dignity, worth and respect. Um, Although, you know, we did have we did have the process of people advocating for their rights and more than 500 people were arrested after the fact. This really started to shape the like the history of the movement of people creating holding like officials accountable uh for the the disproportionate impact of environmental like effects and consequences that could lead to health you know long-term health consequences uh but there were people that were so grounded in just seeing a need for change just seeing a need for advocating for human rights and just being considered uh, but it, it's just a historical lens of like a lot of policy implications where we continue to see even nowadays like we continue to see that people of color like our, our voice is not seen and not heard until we stand up and then we're protesting and we're advocating for something to really lead us to being considered to being valued uh, but this is one of the many examples in history that has shaped how we, we, we have shaped the way that we consider what we advocate for in policies because we understand that policy, like poverty, for example, is a policy choice. Um, but I will share that, that essentially, you know, the people of Warren County essentially lost their battle. Uh, the toxic waste was eventually deposited into the landfill, but their story is one of the most significant like contributions to the environmental uh, movement. And it definitely did draw national and media attention, and it sparked a movement across the country for people who had similar injustices.
0: Thank you so much for, for that. Um, just really, really giving us a, a an idea of how this movement really started and really being able to elevate the voices and the concerns of communities of color that so often are placed, um, and we'll, we'll get into this housing policy, uh, placed in, in locations or zoning, however it be, uh, that impact not only where they live, but have a strong implication on health because of what we see uh, being done in these communities. So really thanking you for, for giving us that initial kind of where it started um, and how it's, it's going. And we see so much today that these are issues that are, are still being raised. They have such a huge impact, again, on communities of color that experience a lot in the brunt of uh, many of these injustices. I mean, most of, I, there, there have been many recent cases when I'm thinking of Mississippi and the water crisis and how infrastructure and policy played such a big role in, in what we see happening there. So I wanna talk a little bit um, and get into the issue brief because we talk a lot about the connection uh, within the, the issue brief that we published recently. And so in this new issue brief, we, we set up a many deep dives into housing policy and environmental justice. So I want to turn to you to speak more about how housing policy has contributed to environmental racism and a lack of justice in our country.
1: Oh, yeah. I love this question. I could talk justice all day. Uh, Well, you know, Chantelle, historically, we have seen the way that inherently racist policies, they have shaped like, you know, burdens on environmental burdens on low income individuals and people of color um, at a disproportionate impact compared to their affluent counterparts. Right. And for example, let's just like shape this work. So these inequities can be tracked to even the Great Depression when the United States was faced with, you know, national housing shortages. And during that time, the New Deal created projects to help stabilize the economy, right? And part of this process Also, included segregating marginalized communities into different urban housing projects, having different stipulations on who could get support, when they could get support, how, and going through an infinite process for survival, right? A very biased process. White families could move into new suburban uh, developments. The people of color were subjected to zonings and restrictions, and we had segregation of the housing stock also known as redlining laws, and that continued to perpetuate and reinforce unjust living conditions for people of color. So that has been the historical framework of how housing was introduced in the United States, and just understanding the historical aspect of housing policy, it illustrates why people still continue to discriminate in access to affordable housing, access to um, the types of homes that people of color are shown, like uh, for example, in the 1930s when the government created the maps, like the, color, the color-coded maps of metropolitan areas on the quote-unquote safest locations to ensure mortgages. Like this is all structural racism by design folded and crafted into a policy decision that upholds white supremacist values and that hinders people of color from having access. I don't get the big deal on people of color that have endured trauma and pain, having access to a quality of life, but that is that is the, the the those are the cards that we have been dealt, right? That is what it was, and we're at a rare opportunity now to really expose these injustices. I don't feel like we necessarily uh, we I, that we maybe had the words to like describe the experience. At least that could you know that was like my family's experience. Like some were privileged, some were able to act, have access to privilege based on the how fair skinned they were. And for others, they just they were had access to more uh, project based like apartments like you know it just it really was contingent upon like race and like how white passing you were back then right and like minority neighborhoods for the most part like in the color mapping like and that whole zoning restriction they were marked as like high, risky higher risk right. And this really is stems from racial bias. It lacks sufficient evidence to morally, if we think about upholding someone's dignity and worth, like morally, to place like residents like at, at to be a at risk community because of the color of their skin. So these practices essentially resulted in white families being favored for housing opportunities at the expense of minority homeowners who were deny loans. You know, where's the equity in that? And researchers really, you know, demonstrate in the work that redlining of minority homes, like of minority, I'm sorry, minority neighborhoods, um, in more than 100 American cities, has placed a heavier burden on residents from extreme heat to other communities. Uh, these are some findings published in the the journal the journal called Climate. We have just seen the impact of like redlining laws and the disproportionate rates at which people have access to a quality of life that could. Improve their mental health, improve their physical health, improve their access to just abundance, right? Their dignity is not being upholded uh, because the policies that were written, they create harm. They perpetuate harm and don't consider all residents. They just, in the beginning, it just considered just a certain group and demographic. And the research supports that information um, that racism has been infiltrated through bias housing policies such as those that outlined.
0: Picking up from so much of what you said, I mean, environmental, this environment, this conversation on environmental justice is really highlighting racism. It's highlighting racial discrimination. It's highlighting how communities of color have been impacted in ways where even the way that infrastructure has been built into neighborhoods where it goes beyond even sometimes connecting that not only where you live, but also thinking of communities that don't have the transportation they need to get around. They can't get to work because of the way that their neighborhoods have been built up. Therefore they can't get to the nearest stations or have access to very important highways, um, be able to uh, get clean water in many situations. And in, in other situations we're seeing pollution, we're seeing a uh, toxic waste um, in, in communities of color, Color, um, really being built on these racist policies that really targeted a group of people. And we we have seen that historically and it's being perpetuated today and really being able to specify what these issues are and advocate for the policies that are equitable and really, like you've mentioned, take in every single person, um, every single being, uh, and really, really attributing what is that that these communities, the communities that we speak of that are so, so deep to both of us as, as black women, it's, it's hard to have to advocate for the value of your community, of the health of your community, uh, knowing that there have been so many policies that uh, have been enacted that are so harmful to your community, and it's it's really hurtful. So I just also like to identify that it's it's really hurtful to even talk about some of these things, even though we're talking about it in a way that's like policy. There's a there's a level of research base and the historical contents of it, but it is harmful. It's hurtful, and it truly is when we're seeing uh, things happen, when we see disasters happen, and it 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 impacts um, Black and Brown people. It impacts us the, the most. Uh, it has a devastating impact on our community. It it. Has uh, it's 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 contributed to death tolls in our community. It's truly something that's hurtful to speak of, and to know that there are policies that need to be placed in order to make these uh, make our, our outcomes more equitable. To really um, identify with and and create the kind of world where we are not. Placing people in situations and in living environments that we know can be detrimental to them. It's truly, you know, the, it's it's just a weird thing to have to say that you need to advocate for. So uh, just hearing you and listening to you speak a lot about, you know, historically where we've been and, and just also how those things are impacting us today and such real harmful ways is just, again, something that I, it, it's, it's always it's, it's always a bit hurtful to hear uh, sometimes as well. So just acknowledging, you know, that, that feeling in me that's like, oh man. Uh, but I, I do want to talk a bit more too about the research. What does the research say about communities that bear the burden of toxic waste and pollution?
1: Thank you, Chantal. A hundred percent agree with all that you outlined and fingersnaps over here. Just, just resonating with the lived experience and just the pain and the trauma that is endured. It's funny because all the research actually outlines some of that what you what you just displayed. Uh, it, it talks about in like communities of color that there's a disproportionate impact on Black residents that are affected, uh, but. They are victimized by environmental hazards and are far more likely to live in areas with heavy pollution, right? So that's where you start to see the health disparities, asthma uh, because of poor quality air or living near landfills. And that has detrimental effects on residents, right? The research also suggests that people of color are more likely to die of an environmental causes. And more than half of the people who live close to a hazardous waste um, locate like landfill are people of color for the most part and activists have called on environmental ra- called environmental racism like the new Jim Crow essentially as it, it we're continuing to see that it subjects communities of color to more inequitable living conditions this is in the modern day so not much has changed it's just had different uh, policy titles I like to call it but the language is pretty much the same and the research especially from researchers of color really captures those experiences. I think it's even more fundamental and it brings it home for me when I'm reading, like, a peer-reviewed article for the most part that captures, like, qualitative information on one's lived experience. I say it all the time. We cannot make assumptions on what we think people need. We need to document and showcase research, evidence-based research from people who are on the ground who are experiencing these injustices, they will be able to be the mouthpiece of the advocacy. They will be able to tell us what they need. And I've been like really, really like happy and pleased to see just in the field a lot of contributions that connect it to community and their experiences. That is far more influential for advocacy purposes of documenting lived experience on what we know to be true and not covering up and keep turning a blind eye to policy implications that are not effective. Essentially, the research really connects that structural and systemic racism are still very prevalent in housing policies and discrimination continues to occur in different forms. That's right.
0: That part about policies not really being effective or, or really just being effective for a group of people and leaving a completely other group of uh, group of people out of the picture and that historically being black communities and black people experiencing this burden and experiencing these health challenges that come with this, this burden um, that is a risk to our lives. So it's it's incredibly important. It is, important doesn't even sound like the right word to use but it's the one that's coming to mind right now. But we have to look at things with the racial equity lens. We have to know how our policies impact every single group of people, and it must be equitable. And we have to be intentional about the ways that we, we go about it, the way that policy is written, the process in which policy is implemented. We need a lens that is a racial equity lens that really uh, eliminates this harm, this trauma that is placed on Black communities that, again, hold the, the, the brunt of, of what we talk about when we're talking about these injustices. So thank you so much for that. And I, I want to talk about a topic that a lot of people hear in the news. has been something that has been elevated, I think, in the last few years. I'm kind of trying to pinpoint where but i just feel like the minute you say climate change people know what you're talking about it's been in the news it's something that resonates with a lot of people at this time so more and more attention has been placed on climate change the threat of climate change especially in the ways that it relates to extreme temperatures and rising frequency of natural disasters so how does this climate
1: change intersect with environmental justice that is such a great question Uh, There are a multitude of ways that climate change intersects with environmental justice. Environmental justice is an act of liberation, right? It is an act of having, you know, just demanding like our dignity and worth be upheld in, in light of some of the natural disasters that are occurring. And let's be real about it. Climate change exists because of racism, so in order to advance racial justice through the environmental lens, as natural disasters begin to occur, the way I could best phrase it, our affluent counterparts, they have all the means, the resources, because everyone is at risk, right? No one is, all, that is the difference with climate change and racism right now. No one is off limits. So when we think about maybe climate change in an affluent area, like let me just say um, Ventura, California, right? Beautiful area. Houses are on the hills, but the foundations are unstable if you get all that rain. So recently we saw a lot of uh, people filing claims through insurances because of like mudslides. Some were covered, some were not. But that was an example of like climate change affecting someone where it's like your power and privilege can't necessarily um, take you you know escape the problems at large right so if we had a more justice oriented approach to consider what about people who live in surrounding boroughs and neighborhoods or even in that space where they're just homeless what happens to them when these natural disasters occur they're just left in limbo like no we need to create a space right to have more equitable access because we all are, are impacted by climate change. And money cannot just simply solve a problem, it can elevate your resources and. And can you know maybe get you like a, a hotel in a, a nearby town that is not directly affected that day. But when you go back to real life, we still have these problems, right? You still have the impact of disasters. When is your home going to be rebuilt? And people in like lower income communities that are reliant on on government, they're reliant on landlords. You know, the tenants that are reliant on other folks to you know support with their with the, the direct impact they don't necessarily have the wealth of of knowledge at times or resources to achieve the same outcomes as our affluent counterparts. So I feel like climate change just gives us an opportunity to really come together, to build as a community, to build more equitable and viable resources that are sustainable, that can again, uphold one's dignity and worth. Uh, But we're seeing like, you know, money can't just solve the, the problem. We we have to actually work together to ha- uphold more justice-oriented approaches. And when I think of justice, I think of everyone having access and be, having a seat at the table, but centering the experiences of those who have been um, left behind historically. Those are my thoughts.
0: If we're not addressing policies in a way that that look at how policies that we create and try to implement will affect Every group of people, um, especially considering the historical context that we work in in this country um, to for Black people and Black communities, we're intentionally going about creating the same type of outcomes that we are trying to or or say that we're trying to prevent. So, the voices around creating justice in our system creating equity in our system has been something that we've advocated for forever uh and now i think that we're we're not it's not a it's not a new voice it's not a new conversation but there has been i want to say picking up steam and picking up strength um throughout the ways that we we advocate and hopefully, because sometimes I have this conversation, I think to myself, like, how long are we gonna have to advocate before we really do see the solutions that we we want to see and the significant transformational change that we do want to see? But um, we also need to make sure that we're keeping that voice strong and and make sure that we're 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 people who are passionate about doing this work and being those voices in the places and spaces that we need to to push that kind of change forward. So just thank you so much for for sharing all that you have, the research that you've shared with us today, uh, the historical context that you shared with us today. I want to pivot a bit to what we're actually seeing in terms of policy, a bit about the campaign. I mean, folks uh, who tune into the podcast may be familiar And I want to say in in every episode, we kind of touch a bit on the policy agenda, but for the the campaign policy agenda, it's a very forward-looking, very ambitious um, uh, agenda to really increase housing, the supply of housing, uh, to increase and expand resources such as vouchers or renter's tax credit to help renters uh, and also talking about a way to help those that might uh, be experiencing housing instability because of an unexpected shock. So it's a very broad bucket of items um, and is built that way in order to bring in more groups into the campaign because it's a very diverse coalition of partners and we know that each and every single one of our partners are working very specifically in their issue area. So keeping it as broad as we can, but really talking about the big buckets of housing uh, supply and demand uh, and prevention tactics that will really help people, especially those experiencing, uh, that, that have the lowest incomes and experiencing the most housing instability, helping really those people to stabilize um, in their housing. So I wanted to turn over to you. There's, there's still a lot of work to do regarding federal policy around environmental justice and housing policy. So what are some policies or areas of focus that are most urgent to you in these domains?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. It's a great opportunity to talk about like why housing justice is so fundamental. I'm actually undergoing a process in the institution um, to develop a housing justice strategy. And here's why. And then I'll list the types of policy advocacies that I feel like are groundbreaking and fundamental at this time. Affordable housing, we understand that there is a shortage right now. So we definitely should be advocating for more affordable housing and safe environments, right? I also look at the concept of housing justice. It like, again, back to the upholding someone's dignity and worth, right? Regardless of gender, race, socioeconomic status, immigration status, like... All of the boxes that people are often discriminated against. Housing justice allows us to have these meaningful and rich conversations um, to reflect community values and advocate for priorities and principles that will elevate the quality of of living in light of climate change. Housing justice is a fundamental. It it shows housing to be a fundamental right. I think what often happens in the narrative, Chantel, has been like housing, you're kind of on your own. Right. In the United States, like it's not like it's like a necessity. Well, it's a necessity, but it's not like it's a right or people are championing it for at the federal level consistently. Like housing has been left off of the off of the chopping block for too far, too long. And there has been so many discriminatory practices that have come in partnership with advocating for fair and safe housing. So when I think about housing justice, it allows us to unlearn learned behaviors and it also can be used as a vehicle towards ending systemic racism through housing policy. For example, some of the redlining laws, the zoning provisions, like those are like those had unequal consequences and disproportionate impacts on communities of colors. But housing justice allows us to navigate the conversation in a research-based way that promotes the dignity and worth of all all residents, regardless of their status. Um, Some of the key areas that I have found to be super interesting that align with these goals and in partnership with what I am learning with community, it really centers uh, displacement protections, tenant protections, uh, rent control, land use regulations, and equitable building DCAR policies, particularly with the equitable building DCAR. Sometimes, uh, well, not sometimes, people nowadays, what I'm learning they are just starting to associate buildings with people. Like people who have to exist in buildings, right? Before it's like, let's just decarbonize these these buildings, but we have to think of the human experience in these policies and just the access to just quality of life. Again, upholding someone's dignity and worth can be done through policy, can be done through advocacy. We just have to advocate for things in partnerships with communities that can really attest to the credibility of the way these policies have had implications on them, on their housing, on their health, on their quality of life. Uh, but those are some of the domains of policy, like housing policy, that are important to me. And I invite you know new like thought leadership and thought partnership with with folks on the ground to just really amplify the work of achieving great success through our advocacies, through just strengthening the voices of people on the ground, like. That is all really, really fundamental and important to me because my best work, my greatest allies have been uh, being a, have been those in community that can really shape and inform the decision making for um, uh, for greater success. Truly, truly appreciate
0: your point on just how we work together to address the concerns that we see. There is a need for us to. To connect with those um, that are expressing the concern and doing the work um, on the grassroots level, on the local level in terms of the ways that policies are being implemented on the state level and the federal level where we are speaking about these broad initiatives and broad programs and broad, um, just really ambitious and, and large ways to funding to help us really address the issues and concerns that that we have. And so for individuals looking for ways to to connect, ways to get involved in the policy and advocacy that we are working with, um, part of it is is being in tune with Opportunity Starts at Home and looking at the ways we have a take action page on the website um, that... That uh, house some of our immediate opportunities for advocates to send letters to their members, um, their their Congress members, really asking them and urging them to uh, whether it's a particular bill that we are supporting or generally our policy agenda. And right now we've had very much a robust action and and initiative around the budget cuts that we're seeing, um, because if there's budget cuts, then we have a, a big problem in terms of not only housing, but so many programs that we care about. This this uh, very pervasive way of capping spending uh, will impact us not, not just in this budget, but will also impact us uh, in budgets moving forward. So that's something that the campaign and and our partners have really been uh, mobilizing around in order to uh, make sure that that is not something that is happening. But also there are our bills this year that we've been advocating behind and uh, again, to keep up to date with all of those things, um be a subscriber to opportunity starts at home and and go to our website and find more information um but wanting to also pivot it over to you, Dr. Johnson, about what can individuals do to contribute to policy change in this area and how can they support the work that that you're doing in their communities
1: yeah that's that's great. I think the very first start is if this resonates, this podcast resonates with you. Um, the first step will be to keep in touch um, on our NRDC page. Um, there are multiple opportunities uh, to get involved. Um, if there's a very specific interest in connecting with me in the housing policy landscape, please feel free to connect with me via the NRDC page um, on my home or my profile, um, and I'm happy to further explore. Uh, but in your community in general, outside of just like NRDC, There are are multiple ways to get back, to volunteer, to just, if you want to have a a positive impact on environmental change, like you can start, you know, by recycling, you can start by spreading the word, you can start start by educating yourself with proper, incredible resources. And I have a list um, to share with you all in a moment um, to really expand your your, your world and, and take you out of comfort zones. I think that's the most fundamental thing is education. Just reading, um, writing, and asking clarifying questions on things that you have an interest about, but you maybe want to amplify. Um, but to su- support the, the work, I think it's just really informing someone else with credible knowledge. Like, each one each one is always the best advice that I have for folks that are interested in staying connected in this movement.
0: Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on this podcast episode. We are at the end with just one single question, which is about resources. So if there's any additional resources to share with with our audience today, please jump in and let them know where they can find it and what would, what you would recommend.
1: Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. This was just a beautiful session and I really enjoyed vibing with you. And just being real, you know, it's so important that, you know, we are able to be ourselves and advocate for things that uplift the dignity and worth of our communities, especially the communities we come from. So I'm, I'm thankful to be represented with, re- representing with another Native New Yorker. Um, some resources that I have for folks that are listening uh, by some beautiful Black women that are just game changers in the environmental justice movement. So the first book that I would encourage you to read is The Intersectional Environmentalist by Leah Thompson. Another uh, book that is a great read is Sustainable South Bronx, A Model for Environmental Justice by Majora Carter. The next book is called A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind by Harriet A. Washington. And the last recommendation I have for my avid readers out there would be Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape by Laura, Lauret Edith Savoy. Thank you. Thank you. Such incredible recommendations.
0: I know I definitely will be paying that back so that I can check some of those out. And thank you so much for being intentional, too, about which voice you're uplifting as well. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast episode. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. Again, that issue brief that we spoke of will be in the description box as well as other resources that we mentioned today. Really have a great day and we'll see you guys or we'll listen to you guys or tune you guys in. How do do we say that in our next episode? Thank you.